Thank you, Marianne, for reading scripture and also for uh, sharing about our missionaries around the world and for updating us. We miss seeing Scott and Marianne here more at Attridge. They've been, a, they've been more, more attending our north site, but uh, we miss seeing you guys here more, but we're so happy for you as well and bless you and thank you for blessing us today. So before we get into the message, just, just pause for a moment and pray together. So Lord God, thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather in your name, Jesus. And we just thank you for the opportunity we already have had to worship you and lift up your name. And Lord, we just agree with the psalmist and we want to sing a new song of praise unto you. And Lord, we also want to declare your praise among the nations. And so Lord, for all of these requests that Marianne shared with us, all of these incredible people, we lift them up to you and pray that your grace will be enough for them in each of their situations. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word brings us confidence that your word is truth. And so I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would open up the words of Jesus to us today, that you would open up our hearts and our spirits to what you want to say to us today. I pray you'll take away the words of Don, and I pray that the words of your word and the words of your spirit will be the ones that touch our hearts today. So I pray that all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my name is Don, and as one of the pastors here, I have the privilege of bringing the message in our series called Kingdom Parables. So back at the end of June, I was able to start the series, and at that time, I taught or I suggested that Jesus' stories or Jesus' parables are really like windows or like mirrors. They're windows in the sense that they can be strategic windows into our lives, but they're also very much like mirrors. And Jesus would use these incredible stories, these incredible parables, to hold up the mirror to those he was addressing. And in many, in many cases, it was maybe a more gentle way he held up the mirror, but there was also many times when it wasn't so gentle, when Jesus was holding up the mirror and they didn't even know that that they were the ones actually getting it. Often, the religious leaders of the day and others would try to trap Jesus and see if they could catch him, and yet it often backfired on them because Jesus told these parables and these stories, and he kind of strategically set them up for them to see themselves in the mirror of of those stories. Now, maybe you've heard this uh, saying before. It's an old adage. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And I think a lot of us have experienced that in many ways, just in fun ways in our life. But I think you'll see from what Jesus often does through his parables, those that thought they could trap him or trick him ended up being the ones that looked more the fools in the end. Now, the parable we're going to talk about today is is an example of that, where Jesus held up a mirror to the religious leaders of the day for them to really see their hypocrisy and who they really were in the parable. And I think we're going to get a chance to look in that mirror too, which, which, isn't, which is difficult often. Now, um, part of Jesus doing this is so often happens in Scripture. And there's, there's one example I just want to start with because it's probably the most known and famous example of Jesus where he kind of turned around an attack and, and just gave a brilliant answer. And it's actually from Matthew 22, which is just past the passage we're going to look at today. 
but it's the famous time when the rulers or the leaders of the day tried to tap Jesus or tried to trap Jesus around the idea of paying taxes. And they buttered him up first and were like, oh, you're such an amazing teacher. Oh, you're such a great rabbi, you know. Now, Jesus, um, with all the people gathered and listening in, tell us, what do you think about paying taxes to the Romans? And Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing their motives, um, gave the brilliant answer. And many of you know this, I know. But he just asked for a coin. He held up the coin to the crowd and he said, whose face or inscription is on this coin? And they shouted out, Caesar's. And then he gave the very famous line, and he said, well, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give unto God what is God's. And they knew, why do we keep taking on Jesus over and over again? It never works. But they tried. So we're going to look at a parable later today where Jesus does a similar thing in the answer that he gives. Now, in the parable we're going to today, it's really important for us to understand the setting or the context before we're, we're going to understand. So if you have a Bible with you or if you're following along on a phone, I'll encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 21. And Matthew, the whole chapter of Matthew 21 is, is a big context, but it really tells a story about what's going on in Jesus' life at the time. Now, Matthew 21 is actually... Jesus' final week on this earth before his death and resurrection. It's, the, it's what we often call Holy Week and the scriptures that we most often um, discuss during the Easter time of year. So chapter 21 begins with Palm Sunday, the, very, the event where Jesus um, set up for himself to come into Jerusalem on a donkey and have the, and have the people greet him. And you got to you just got to picture the setting. So on that Palm Sunday, that Sunday morning, Jesus is on a donkey. He's going through the streets of Jerusalem, and the, and the crowds are out, and they are all praising and shouting out, Hosanna, this is our Messiah, this is the King. So the whole city is stirred up. So that, that happens in the beginning of chapter 21. The next day, after stirring up the city, Jesus decides to show up at the temple. And guess what he does there? He goes into the temple, and he starts turning over tables, and pushing people out, and the, the people that were making money and selling animals and doves for sacrifice, and he was angry and did all that, and then he made his other famous line that he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. So, the first, on Sunday, he would have upset the whole city, he would have upset the Roman rulers, he would have upset the Jewish leaders. Now, the next day on Monday, he goes into the temple and does this. You've got some really upset Jewish leaders now because now what is this Jesus guy doing? Well, you'd think that after that, Jesus might like lay low for a while. <laughs> but no, actually the very next day, Tuesday morning, he goes back to the temple. And in the temple, he decides to have a debate with the chief priests and the elders in the temple and take them on in a debate. And that's the story or the parable that we're going to get to. So that's kind of the heated setting when Jesus gives this parable. Now, when I thought about this, I kind of imagined if there would be like a local reporter in Jerusalem that was going to interview Jesus and basically talk to him about what his strategy was for his great week of ministry in Jerusalem. And when I thought about that, I thought about this. Okay, how do we have some families or people that during the year attend our family experience service. Are there some of you here? I see some of you. Okay, now, 
Who is the character at the family service who does interviews with biblical characters and always gets everything mixed up and wrong? Come on, shout it out if you remember who's that character. No, it's not Ted. Ted is pretty goofy and funny, but he's not that character. No, it's not Reginald. Come on. Darcy is going to be devastated that you don't know who his character is. There it is, Sam Shovel. So if you've never been a part of the family experience, Sam Shovel is this detective who is interviewing Bible characters, and he always gets everything wrong and completely mixed up. And so I was just imagining Sam Shovel interviewing Jesus and saying, okay, Jesus, like, what's your strategy for ministry in Jerusalem this week? And then Jesus says, well, first I'll stir up the city and have them all proclaim me king and really tick off the Romans. Good idea. Oh, okay. And then you know what? I think then I'll go to the temple and I'll just get rid of all those people that are ripping people off and desecrating the temple. I'm, I'm sure they'll love that. Let's go and do that. Oh, and then maybe the next day I'll go and debate the religious leaders and really tick them off too. And I could just hear Sam Shovel going, that is a terrible strategy, Jesus. That is dangerous. You could get yourself killed. What are you doing? So anyway, that's what I thought of. And, but I just wanted to give you all the setting of, of what was going on here. Now, if, you are, if you're looking in Matthew 21, I do now want to read the part from verse 23 to 27, because this is now Jesus in the temple deciding to have a debate with the religious authorities. So let's read that together. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. So Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. They're set up quite well, aren't they? But here's Jesus taking them on over this whole idea of authority. So what's going on here? Now, these chief priests and these elders, they were very, very sure and very secure in their authority because their ancient scriptures, the Torah, and all of their traditions and their lineage all said, you guys have the authority to, be, to, to do what you do and to be who you are in this culture. And so they were very sure of themselves. And their idea was, if they could challenge Jesus' authority, authority, especially in front of the people, that they could shame him and make themselves look better. Now, if you're familiar with different cultures around the world, um, a lot of them go by what we would call honor culture. And that's what this culture was like. And honor culture is basically, if you win the hearts of the people and you have honor by them, you win. And how you do that is by shaming your opponents and saving face for yourself. So that was was the whole strategy. So the plot of these religious leaders 
was to try to get Jesus in trouble, both with the Romans who were ruling over them, but also with the people. So they thought, if we challenge Jesus on his authority, and we get him to sort of um, say that he's the king of the Jews or he's the Messiah, that he's claiming any kind of kingly ruling authority, then we know that the Romans are going to be ticked about that and that'll be treason. So let's see if we can trick Jesus into treason to try to get rid of him and get him arrested. The other part of their strategy was if they could get Jesus to declare, I have this authority through God, then they can accuse him of blasphemy and they can hopefully shame him in front of the people that who is this mere man trying to claim the authority of a prophet or or even more so the authority of, of even being God's son. So they thought they could accuse him of blasphemy. Now it's interesting, authority was so important and to the Jewish people, they saw authority in three, in three ways. First, there was the king, and the, and the king had that political authority to rule. Then there were the priests, and the priests had the authority both through lineage and through Torah to be the ones that, that basically ruled their whole religious system. And then there were the prophets, and the prophets were kind of the rogue ones because they didn't fit the the system too well, but they still had sort of this uncanny authority from God, and they often spoke very directly to kings and priests. But again, the people had this, this very clear idea of the authority of prophets, the authority of priests, and the authority of kings. Now, what was interesting about the Messiah, who they were hoping for to come, was that Scripture taught that Messiah would embody all of these roles, that Messiah would be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. And what is a foundational belief or doctrine or understanding of the Christian faith is this whole idea that Jesus completely fulfills the role of Messiah because he fulfills the roles and the authority of being our prophet, our priest, and our king. Let me just read from you um, an old-school theologian, J.I. Packer, and how he talks about this important Christian doctrine. He says, It is his glory, given him by the Father, to be in this way the all-sufficient Savior. We who believe are called to understand this and to show ourselves his people by obeying him as our king, trusting him as our priest, and learning from him as our prophet and teacher. To center on Jesus Christ in this way is the hallmark of authentic Christianity. So, Jesus is presented with this question. By what authority do you do do all this? And he says back to them, well, if you let me ask you a question, I'll answer your question. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that they went for this, but they seem to. I, I think the reason that they went for this so easily is because they assumed they knew what Jesus would ask. I think they thought, since we're challenging him on authority, He's going to challenge us back in authority, and we have all the right answers. So we're not afraid of his question at all. We know we've got the pedigree. We've got the right. We've got the Torah. We, we have the authority. They were pretty excited about that. But then Jesus throws them all off kilter because he throws out a random idea that they weren't expecting at all. He says to them, what about, here's my question, what about John the Baptist? What about that rogue prophet that had All these people follow him out out to the wilderness because he taught a message of repentance, taught a message of holiness, of coming back to God, and then baptized all these people. What about that whole movement? What about that person that the people think is a prophet, 
but you don't like it all because he took people away from the temple and took people away from your influence because he brought them something else. So, elders, leaders, what do you think of John the Baptist? What do you think of John's baptism? Is it of God or is it of man? Now, in the scripture, the elders have a little huddle and they realize they're trapped. If they say it's, it's of God, then they know Jesus is going to be able to say, well, then why, don't, why didn't you believe him and why don't you believe me? But if they would say that it was of human origin, they knew that the crowds loved John and thought that he was a prophet and they were afraid of the crowds. And so they came up with a gr- brilliant answer, we don't know. And that's how that, that's how that scene, scene ended. Now, why did Jesus bring up this question of John the Baptist? Well, some would say that he was just simply authenticating his own authority through John's authority. So if they recognize John as a prophet, why don't you recognize me as a prophet? If he was from God, why can't I be from God? That may have been the reason. Some would say that Jesus was just simply using a diversionary tactic. And he, he probably was. He probably could have done these on many levels. But I would suggest to you that Jesus... I think was even more strategic. I think he wanted to lift up John's ministry and and especially his practice of baptism to be a critique of temple worship and of temple leadership. You see, at that time, the general population of the Jews were very disillusioned by the temple and were very disillusioned by temple leadership. And that was commonly known. And so, when this John the Baptist, this rogue prophet comes along, and all of a sudden all of these people are not going to the temple and to the priests for answers, but they're wandering into the desert to hear this rogue prophet, to listen to a message of repentance, and then to get baptized, that would have been, again, very offensive to the Jewish leaders. But it it also showed how the people had already voted with their feet. These people were disillusioned by the corrupt system. And by Jesus bringing this up, he was was hitting the core of a really controversial and hard issue. So as I studied and thought about this, I have to be honest with you that I had some real dark thoughts and some real struggles in my spirit as I thought about this. And I thought about our time, and I thought about all the disillusioned people in our culture who look at the church, who look at church people, or, who, or what or who they think church people are, and they're very disillusioned. They're very critical, and they're wondering, does the church really have answers anymore? Is the church really credible? And even people that have spent their life in church, many, many are going through all kinds of disillusionment and all kinds of questions and feeling very critical of what is the church doing? How is the church even relevant? I know that to be true. And I know that there are many, many churches, especially coming out of this pandemic season, that are really worried about who's actually going to be in the pews come fall. So it's a, it's a really tough question to think about. I guess what I would simply say, if you're feeling that way and you have lots of those kinds of disillusionment type of questions, I would say, yeah, I think probably many of them are legit. And my heart goes out to you, and and I join you in many ways. The other part of me, though, realizes that Jesus has still called the church to be the bride of Christ, to be his body, 
to be His plan for bringing His kingdom to planet Earth. And yeah, are we a wrinkled and spotted bride? Are we a very flawed system at times? Absolutely we are. There's lots that we need to own. But we're still the church of Jesus Christ. And I wondered, okay, Lord, help us. How can we go from all of this disillusionment and criticism and struggle to a revival that would actually have us be the church that you want us to be? Can you replace all this cynicism with hope and with a plan? So as I was thinking of all of this, one of the commentators I was reading said this about this passage. His name is Rodney Reeves, and he said this, Criticism deals with the present. Something anyone can see. Creating something new is about the future. Having eyes to see what isn't seen. It takes faith to create something new, especially when no one else can see it. I hope and I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that no matter where we're at, that God can move us from criticism to creation and see his church go forward with power. Pray with me that way. All right, well, now we're finally going to get to the parable. (laughs) So after all of that authority debate, now Jesus is luring them in with, he's actually going to tell three stories or three parables in a row that's going to hold up the mirror to these religious leaders that tried to trap him. And we're just going to quickly look at this very short first one. So verse 28 to 32 says this. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Jesus asked them. The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Wow. That's a tough holding up of the mirror, isn't it? So, we could all imagine what Jesus was saying to those religious leaders, and I'll let you think through that some more. But I feel like at this point in the parable, let's risk now looking in the mirror ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us which one of these two sons are we like. That was tough for me because... I'm very much like both of them in many ways. So I enter this journey um, with trepidation like the rest of you. But let's, let's risk holding up the mirror and say, okay, Holy Spirit, who are we in this parable? So the first son I call the reluctant son. Now, just to give again a little bit of perspective, the father says, go and work in the vineyard. Now, the the people would have understood the vineyard as the nation or the kingdom. We would understand it in terms of what Jesus is saying is that that the vineyard is the kingdom of God. So what we want to think about is if Jesus comes to us and he says, here's the invitation, go and work in my vineyard, go and work in my kingdom, what's our response? Now, the first son, 
The reluctant son gave a really, really quick no. Like, no hesitation. Just, nope, I'm not going to do that. So why such a quick no? Well, I would suggest that the quick no, like us when we have a quick no, probably starts with a lot of fear and a lot of insecurity. I think for a lot of us, if we sense that Jesus is calling us or nudging us to serve in some way in the kingdom, generally what we feel is inadequate, that I don't have enough gifts, or that my gifts aren't strong enough and able to do what Jesus is asking of me. And we usually have very legit insecurities about that and even fears about that. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why, why this son so quickly said no. I also think that he could have been like the people I was describing before. Those of us who feel disillusioned, feel a lot of cynicism, or even feel a lot of hurt over things that have happened in the past through church. And I think if that's happened to us, and we feel an invitation to serve in the vineyard, to serve in Jesus' kingdom, I think we're often reluctant because of some of that pain. And I think that's legit. We've got to find ways to bring that to Jesus but I think we can name it. But I think that's what's happening here. And yet here's what's interesting about the first son. He gives the quick no, again, whether it was out of fear and insecurity or whether it was out of disillusionment and cynicism, but he gave that quick no. But then it says that he changed his mind. He changed his mind. And you know, that's the same word uh, that's translated repentance. It's so good to think of that word, that Greek word, as change of mind, because we have so much attached to the word repentance. We think of it in such a stringent, religious-y kind of God's angry with us because of our moral failures kind of way. And yet, really, what this is about is changing your mind. And so, this first son had the quick no but then out of trust and appreciation for Jesus was willing to change their mind and go anyway and trust that even with the insecurities and even with the pain, if Jesus is calling me, I'll risk obeying because it's coming from Jesus. How are we like that first son? Now, the second son was the opposite, right? The second son gave the quick yes In fact, the second son right away was like, yes, sir. Very much formal, very much wanting to show the father, I understand your authority, and I'm willing to do this, and yet had no intention. Interesting, right? I would suggest to you, and I call this son the reputation or perhaps the good intention son. You see, this son was totally concerned about appearances, how people think of me, how people perceive me. And you know, I thought about this for myself and my confession. I know that so many times I've been with groups of people and you've been talking about something and people are really passionate about an issue that's important. And because you want to appear that you're just as concerned, that you're spiritual too, we find that pressure of, yes, well, of course we'll pray about that. Of course we'll participate in that. Of course, and yet inside we know, uh, probably not. Yeah, I confess that. I know it it can be that way. I think it's so hard for us to not want people to see us or view us as being spiritual, and yet are we willing to obey Jesus and work in his vineyard? The other thing I wonder about the second son is, 
Do you think he was willfully disobedient? Or do you think he was just a victim of good intentions? And I would suggest to you, I think he was the victim of good, in, good intentions. I think he was like me, like many of us. You know, have you ever read a great book, heard a compelling teaching, went to a conference, or, or something that's like, oh, yeah, I need to change this in my life. Oh, yeah, I need to, you know, like, grab, I need to serve in this way. And you're just pumped about it, and then, poof, <laughs> it's gone. And, and you really did, in the moment, have the good intentions but what happened, right? We're, we're distracted. We're busy. We've got so many competing things in our life that, that, yeah, Jesus comes to us and says, go to work in my vineyard, go to work in my kingdom, and we want to say yes. We know it's good. We know it's right. We even know it'll be fulfilling if we do it, and yet it's so hard to be obedient because we can be so filled with good intentions. So, which son are we? So as we reflect on this, again, that's why I pray it at the top. I don't, I don't want you to be convicted or guilted by any of my words, but I pray you'll open up your heart and spirit to, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? You know, guilt and conviction are very different. Guilt brings condemnation, and that's not from God. But conviction brings a hope inside that Jesus loves me enough to change me. Jesus is not condemning me. He actually loves me enough that the invitation is still open. Didn't you notice in this story that when Jesus asked them, so who was the obedient son? And they answered, well, it was the first one. It was the one that, that was honest and initially just said, no way, I'm not doing it. And yet they allowed the Holy Spirit to soften their heart and went from a hard no to an openness to say yes. And the Holy Spirit can still do that in our lives. And so I encourage you to listen to the Spirit and allow Him to convict us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Where are they all hiding out there? Come and take, come and take your spots. And we're, we're going to sing a couple songs together, but the first song we're going to sing is a song called Be Thou My Vision. And I just would invite you to just, just to remain seated during that song. And if you want to sing along, bless you, sing with gusto. But I also encourage you to maybe use part of the song just to reflect. And just to say, okay, Holy Spirit, okay, Jesus, here's the mirror of your parable. Which son am I? What are you speaking to me today? Jesus invites us to work to serve in his kingdom. It's, it's an invitation. It's a calling. He loves and wants to equip. All he needs from us is a willing spirit, a yes. Can I encourage us today too, as those earlier quotes, can we, can we move from criticism to creation? Can we pray together for a revival and for steps ahead that are going to have the church honor Jesus and truly be the church of Jesus Christ and be that together in unity? Pray with me. So, Holy Spirit of God, we invite you to move. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just waft over this congregation, all of those in this room and all of those watching live right now and even those who will watch later. 
And I pray again, Spirit of God, would you take away the words of Don, and I pray that your words, that your heart for your people, your conviction would come over us. So Lord, we, we confess, we ask you to change our minds. We ask you to change our hearts. And we ask you to put a yes in our spirit. And so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for a yes in your spirit. And I pray for a resolve to go from a yes to obedient steps. And Lord, we need your strength for that. So I lift up our congregation to you. I lift up the future of our church to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the head of the church. You are the great shepherd. You said that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail. We stand on those promises. We declare that your grace is enough. Have grace on your people, O oh God. Have grace on your church. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.